chapter 7. John chapter 7, uh, this, this morning we are following Jesus together in the Gospel of John. And we are in part 2, began last week when we looked at the first 24 verses of John chapter 7. And the subtitle is merely the Feast of Booths because that's the setting in which we find ourselves and it's the setting in which Jesus is teaching. It's at the Feast of Booths. Well, this week and next, we will be focusing down. We're going to take the camera and we're going to focus down right on some key things that Jesus says in three verses. Our focus this morning, this week, and next week is verses 37, 38, and 39. And so this week, and then Lord willing, next, we'll be getting tighter and tighter focused, and you'll see why as we, as we, as we move on. So um, I'm going to read the remainder of the chapter so that we have the whole context, but this morning I'll be focusing on verses 37 through 39. So with that, let me go ahead and begin in verse 25. You can follow along in your Bible. I'm going to read to the end of verse 51 and then pray and we will look to God in his word. So remember, we're right in the middle of this feast of booths. And verse 25 reads, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because... His hour had not yet come. And yet, many of the people believed in Jesus. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me, where I, where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Verse 37, our focus this morning. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because... Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over Jesus. Some of them wanted to arrest Jesus, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring, the, bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing? And learning what he does. And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. 
Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, your son has stood up in scripture and has issued an invitation and a declaration. Jesus said that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Oh, Lord, I pray by your spirit that you would give each of us thirst this morning. We need your grace to hear and see your word, to see and savor Jesus. And if your spirit does not do that for us, Lord, we are helpless and hopeless without you. So, Lord, draw us to your son. Give us to your son. And those of us who may have known you for many years as we hear these glorious and favored words of living waters flowing from our hearts, some may feel defeated and deflated this morning that Jesus' description of the Christian life does not match with our experience of the Christian life. So, Lord, would you help us? Would you strengthen us? Would you comfort us? Would you be everything for us that you are because you are everything? To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, amen. Um, some of you have maybe heard this illustration, this story I've told before. But whenever I hear uh, Jesus' words here in this text, our focus on verse 38, it's always striking of a personal experience that I had as a young man. I was 19. My mom was convinced that I was going to kill myself mountaineering. And so... That got me a free Christmas present to go to Alaska for a month and be trained in, in mountaineering. And one day on this expedition in Alaska on a glacier, uh, our task was to be up at a certain time and break camp and then gather with the guides and have the day's lesson and go about our business. Well, our, uh, my, my, my tent group, we got up late and it took a long time to make our food and that the menu that morning was hash browns, and we had dehydrated hash browns, and so we had to soak them for a long time. And the problem was, because we were in Alaska and on a glacier, three days north on a glacier, um, we had no access to water. We had to make water, and you make the water by boiling um, scraped ice and snow, and there's a whole procedure there. Because we were running late, and the hash browns took forever, and we didn't have time to make water that morning, the only water we had was the hash brown water. The hash browns smelt like the taste of McDonald's hash browns. That should not be enticing to you. The water had the film of oil and fat floating on top and tasted like salt and death. It was like an embalming fluid. And so we went about the day um, with heavy 70 plus pound packs with all of our climbing gear going up north on the glacier. And the problem was, it was a hot day. And so when it came time, parched with thirst to drink the water, the only water that I had was this hash brown water. And it was filthy and disgusting. And, and trying to satisfy thirst with this water was impossible. In fact, it made you more thirsty because of the fat and the salt. It was, it was actually really miserable and very dangerous. And I was um, too prideful to ask anybody for water because we all had limited supplies. And so the day wore on and I was getting fairly beat down by not having any water until on this glacier we were working through some, some glacial fins. Some, the way the glacier was designed and we came down in this little uh, section and there right in front of us was a natural spring flowing from the glacier itself. It was almost like a, it was literally a fountain, but it was a small fountain. This, this small column of water, maybe not more than a, a foot high, was through the pressure of the ice, this old and ancient water just shooting up as pristine, pure, and clear as you can possibly imagine. And so what did we do? We took the, the canteens, dumped them out, got on hands and knees, put the face in this water, and just drank. And it was delicious. It was, it was literally soul-satisfying and physically satisfying 
to have this. Never in my life have I had water so delicious, not just because I was parched, but also because this was the purest and cleanest water. Well, this morning, Jesus is going to issue an invitation to all of us. So whenever he issues this invitation, I think of the gift of that experience that I had on that glacier in Alaska. Jesus is going to say, and he has already said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And his invitation is to those of you who are maybe investigating Jesus but don't yet follow or know Jesus. This is an invitation for you this morning to believe in Jesus, consider him and follow him. But this is also a reminder for us who have followed Jesus and do follow Jesus. This is a reminder of what it means to be a follower of Christ and what the Christian life looks like. Well, our sermon this morning is going to come to us in three parts. There's three verses. Number one, we're going to see Jesus is the true tent and true rock, whatever that means. We're going to see that Jesus is the true tent and true rock in verse 37. The scene that we looked at last week at the Feast of Booths is going to get into even greater focus with some of the things that Jesus says. So we're setting the scene with Jesus as the true tent and true rock then we'll move to the second point, our longest point, and it's this. We are going to see and observe and learn about the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. We're going to see how the third person of the Trinity, what his role is in the life of a Christian. And that's verse 39. And then we're going to end our time briefly in verse 38, which will be our focus next week, verse 38. And that's the vibrancy of the Christian life. Well, let's, let's get going. Let's focus again on our three verses at hand. We're looking at verse 37, but look at verses 37 to 39 with me in your, in your Bible. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, let, let's remember the setting that we spent a lot of time with last week. Remember, it's this uh, annual festival called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents. Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem for this festival, this feast. And this feast, the Feast of Booths, was an annual festival celebrating, and we can't miss this, it was a festival that reenacted the ancient Exodus from the book of Exodus, when God rose up the man Moses to deliver the people of Israel out of bondage and slavery to the Egyptians. And so if we had been with Jesus, and if we had walked to Jerusalem, we would have seen all of Israel had descended upon Jerusalem and camped around Jerusalem and camped around the temple. And they were camping because they were reenacting what it was for Israel to follow God in his tent for 40 years in the wilderness. But we saw last week that this reenactment during the Feast of Booths was not just looking back to the first Exodus, but it was also looking forward to the second Exodus. Because all the writing prophets, Isaiah and Malachi, in your Bible, promise that a second Exodus is coming, not just physical, but spiritual. Not just physical deliverance from bondage to slavery, but spiritual deliverance from bondage to Satan, sin, and death through the work of some person who Scripture calls the Messiah or the Christ. And the sweet irony last week is that as the Israelites were gathered around the temple, remembering when God dwelt among them in a tent, and we saw that God was no longer in his, te his temple last week, up walks Jesus, who is God, tented in the flesh. And we looked at John 1.14, 1 
the word became flesh and tabernacled or tented among us. And the irony was, as the people of Israel were seeking to kill Jesus, and yet reenacting their desire to dwell around God himself, God himself walked up, and they didn't know it, and they wanted to kill him for it. But now this week, here in verse 37 and verse 38, Jesus gives a staggering invitation to believe in him. That's the thirst. Thirsting in Jesus, thirsting for Jesus, uh, coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus are synonymous. Jesus gives that staggering invitation to believe in him. And if you believe, it results in a staggering staggering image that is that living water will flow from you when we read the bible jesus uses strong words and jesus strong words are meant to create pictures in your minds feelings in your feels by painting pictures of belief of what it looks like to believe in jesus to live life in jesus what does it look like to follow jesus What does it look like to be in Jesus? What does it look like to be an embracer of the gospel? This good news that God became man to live in our place, die in our place, rise in our place, to remove our sins and wash them away with his blood. What does it look like then to be a people this side of heaven who follow him? You know, these these images that we've seen even in the Gospel of John, we're only seven chapters in, but think about what we've seen. Turning water into wine in chapter 2, which was prefiguring that final wedding feast on that last day when Christ returns and gathers his people to himself. We saw in John 4 the conversation that he had with the Samaritan woman about uh, eternal water that would give eternal life. And then here again in in chapter 7, the thirst-quenching soul satisfaction of living water. And and then last time in chapter 6, eating Jesus' flesh and drinking Jesus' blood because he's the bread of life. This enigmatic yet profound language is meant to provoke and evoke in us feelings and thoughts of what it means to believe and follow. But, but what, what additional imagery is going on here with Jesus in John 7? If you have a study Bible, it's not uncommon for your study Bible to look to ancient Near Eastern history and say there was a tradition that took place during this time in the first century when, when the religious leaders would go draw water from the Pool of Siloam and take it to another part of Jerusalem and pour it out. And, and, that, and that's what Jesus was referencing. Maybe, but the Bible doesn't say that. And so I'm going to move that aside and let's think biblically about the Bible and what it says. What would Jesus mean here in John 7 when he's saying that this water is going to flow out from him? Well, what's this scene? It's a reenactment of the Exodus. Jesus is already the tent of God reenacting that component. And if we were to go back and read Exodus through Numbers, which chronicle the 40 years in the wilderness, what else do we find? The people thirsted they thirsted in the wilderness the people thought they were going to die in the dry and thirsty land they were parched and they were thirsty and because of that they cried out to God and what did God do he miraculously provided water from a rock through Moses to sustain Israel as they traveled in the wilderness as they tented with God while God tented among them as he did when he walked with Adam and Eve in the, in the garden. Okay? 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4, give us even more insight, <clears throat> excuse me, into John 7. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, So Exodus and Red Sea crossing. Verse 2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, manna and quail, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 
Paul makes clear God the Son did not turn himself into an actual rock that rolled through the desert following Israel in the wilderness. He is clear that it's a spiritual rock as opposed to a physical rock. Did a... Uh, did water come physically from a rock in the wilderness? Absolutely, 100%. The point here of 1 Corinthians 10, helping us understand Jesus' words in John 7, is that God the Son provided the water back in the Exodus. And more than that, the miracle of the water from a rock in those ancient days prefigured and pointed to what God would do eternally through Jesus. So when you read Exodus through Numbers, sit down and read it this week, and you read of the grumbling and complaining and murmuring of the people and God's sweet provision of delicious water from a rock to satisfy their parched thirst, that is meant to show you what God was going to and is doing ultimately through Christ. And so here Jesus walks up to Israel, who's reenacting the Exodus, and Jesus is not only the only God tabernacled in the flesh, he's saying that he is that rock from whom the water flows. He also rightly claims to be the true rock that provides the true life-giving waters to stain us forever, which is eternal life. Thirst, thirst. Thirst was literal for Israel in the wilderness, but it becomes a spiritual metaphor. Jesus is, 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 is grabbing you by the face and he's, he's looking at you in the eyes and he is, he's asking you, do you thirst? Do you thirst? It's, it's like what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6. You've heard this before. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So the, what's the reverse? If you, if you don't hunger for righteousness and if you don't thirst for righteousness, you won't be satisfied because only Jesus, only the gospel of his grace, only the salvation that he can provide, only Jesus himself, not just ideas about Jesus, not just wonderful theological truths about Jesus, but I'm talking about the God-man in the flesh. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul thirst. You are designed, every single human being, every one of you in the hearing of my voice, every single one of us has been designed by God to be satisfied. We are satisfaction-seeking creatures. But what we do is we shop for satisfaction in the things of the world. But we were created not to be satisfied by the things of the world, but by God himself. Not by things or achievements, but satisfaction in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so thirst is that powerful picture for the human life. Now, in our day and age, very few of us ever thirst. Hardly ever. We have easy access to everything from a physical standpoint. But if you pause and you just observe and you look at the people around you, how they order their lives, the decisions that they make, and in a moment of self-awareness, even if you look in your own soul and survey your own life, you can see that this metaphor of thirst is applicable to you because of how you build and order your life. And so Jesus' question to you is, what do you thirst for you survey your life you you, you watch people the, the the students arriving on campus this week education the pursuit of a boyfriend or a girlfriend or the pursuit of marriage the pursuit of achievement the pursuit of leisure and vacation of of popularity of likes and views of a fulfilling marriage, of, of a happy marriage, of, of obedient children, of, of 2.3 children or no children for a leisure-like life or whatever it is, a, a fulfilling job, a full bank account, a political cause. 
It's like high school. You, you can just look at the campus and you can see how people dress and how people talk of how they identify. Those are the football players. Those are the whoever's, the whatever's. I had long blonde hair and wore a water polo t-shirt and then Grimici flowy pants because I was into rock climbing and water polo. I just, my idols were evident in my life by the way I looked and talked. And as we get a little bit older, we just get a little bit more used to it, a little more sophisticated at hiding it. But really, when we look at how we order our lives, that's where we will find where our soul thirst is and what we try to satisfy ourselves with. When you turn those things, education, relationships, leisure, pursuits, when you turn those things, even good things, when you turn something in your life into an end in itself, they become your identity. And the Bible calls that idolatry. Because what we're doing is we're turning a thing or a person or an institution or achievement we're turning that into a functional God and functional Savior, and we're asking him or her or it to do for us what only Jesus can do, satisfy our souls. And so when you turn good things into ultimate things, when they become your life drive, it's not wrong to get an education. It's not wrong to desire a relationship. It's not necessarily wrong to desire singleness because God could give you that gift. It's not wrong to want leisure and vacation. It's not wrong to have success. It's not wrong to pursue a political cause, perhaps. But when you turn any of those things into your identity, you reveal where your soul thirst lies. That's the metaphor that Jesus is using, and he's asking you, are you thirsty? To which every human being should say, yes, I am. Because he lets me down, she lets me down, the education lets me down, the bank account lets me down. They're all empty substitutes. Even turning good things into ultimate things makes them bad things for our souls. And when you do that in a relationship in particular, you begin to crush that person because you are asking them or it or the thing to do what God never designed for them to do in that relationship. And so part of the problems of your marriage or your dating or your work, your satisfaction does not come from your work. It comes from Christ. But we live in a day and age where people are trying to find that, that job that's going to fulfill their souls. Sin so far as you continue to do that, I mean, it's nice to like your job, but satisfaction comes through Jesus. So anything you make ultimate, anything you're willing, listen, here's a way to test this. Anything that you make ultimate, anything that you are willing to sin to get, or anything you're willing to sin to keep, sin to get or sin not to lose reveals where your true thirst is, and that you're shopping on a horizontal level and have turned it into an idol, and you're trying to quench your soul thirst on it, or him or her, rather than Jesus. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus stood up and he cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So the setting and context is Jesus is that rock. We are portrayed as being in the wilderness. And the question is, where are you drinking? Where are you seeking to satisfy your soul? Which then leads us to the second point. Number two, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. Look with me at verse 39, please. We know in this gospel that the author, John the Apostle, will frequently uh, record something that Jesus said, and then he'll jump in, and then he'll narrate the explanation of the text, why Jesus said that. So, so Jesus has just said in verse 38 how rivers of living water will flow from our hearts, and now here in verse 39, he narrates. Now this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were future tense, to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
this one verse is monumentally significant for understanding and making sense of your life when you get up tomorrow morning. We need to pause and think about what the second person of the Trinity is saying about the third person of the Trinity, what Jesus says about the Spirit and why it matters for you. And friend, if you, if you don't know Christ this morning, you, you're going to hear the curtains of Christianity pulled back, and you're going to see a behind-the-scenes glimpse of what is so significant, one of the many things about believing in Jesus. Now, I need to remind you something first. I need to remind you the word that the Bible uses to describe a relationship with God. Maybe you've heard that. Uh, as a Christian, you've heard that a lot. But, but if, if uh, you're considering Christ and someone has talked to him about you, you talk about a personal relationship with Jesus and talk like that, uh, that's helpful, kind of. That's not the word the Bible uses to describe our relationship with God. God uses the word covenant. No covenant, no relationship with God. And God is the one who makes a covenant with us. Uh, for example, in the Bible, biblical marriage is de defined as a covenant. And that's a pretty good way to think about a divine covenant, though there are differences. Why am I saying all this? A divine covenant is when God comes to a man and through that man makes a covenant, a binding oath-bound relationship with a people through that man, that mediator. Jesus is an Israelite. He's a Jew. He's living under the Mosaic covenant, um, meaning Moses' covenant. Jesus is living under what we call the Old Covenant, or what your Bible calls the Old Testament, okay? Think about where we are in the Gospel account. God in the flesh walking on the pages of the Bible, it's the Old Covenant. It's Moses' covenant, okay? One of the chief problems with the Old Covenant, actually it's not a problem with the Old Covenant, it's a problem with the human heart. One of the problems, if you've read through your Old Testament and all of the Jerry Springer show that it is, when you read through your Old Covenant, your Old Testament, the issue with the Old Covenant is that it exposed, on the one hand, the sheer, blinding, beautiful righteousness of God. The glories and perfections of God's ways, but the Old Covenant also exposed the devastating and destitute ways of the human heart perpetually in rebellion against God. The Old Testament is, is cyclical. Over and over again, God basically raises up somebody who delivers the people from some form of slavery or subjugation, and then the people choose to break God's ways, show they don't love God, and they go after false gods over and over and over again. So the Old Testament, or the law, exposed the problems of the human heart. But it could not give the human heart what it needed most, a new human heart. So more than that, the Old Covenant also reveals, maybe you've read about the life of King Saul and King David. The Old Covenant reveals that the ministry of God the Holy Spirit was temporary, sporadic, and limited. The Holy Spirit would, uh, the language would be overshadow or come upon, would overshadow a people, usually prophets or kings, high priests or people called to a specific task like the judges. The Holy Spirit would overshadow somebody. Um, the imagery is much like putting on a cloak. And he, he would overshadow them and then empower them for that task being a king or being a judge. But also, the Holy Spirit could leave. So, for example, when you read about King Saul, King Saul kept disobeying God, disobeying God, disobeying God, to the point where then God removed his spirit from Saul, and Saul was left helpless. That's why later in Psalm 51, David, when he's repenting because of sin, would pray, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. So the Mosaic Covenant, the law, the, the Old Testament, was temporary. 
it was temporary to expose human sin, expose our needs. It also did not allow a permanent relationship with the Holy Spirit. But when you read your Bible, Isaiah to Malachi, there's this dawning of a promise of a new covenant's going to come. And it's called the new everlasting covenant of peace. And it's going to come and it's going to be put in place by the Messiah. The question then for our Old Testament is this. What would make the new covenant new compared to all the previous covenants? If you would, look with me at Jeremiah 31. There are many places that we can go. Jeremiah 31 is one of the chief texts describing the arrival of a new covenant that's going to come in the future. Listen to this. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. Jeremiah prophesies, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. He's talking to the people in the covenant community. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Keep your eyes on verse 34. There's so much to see here. I'm going to point out two things from verse 34. What makes the new covenant new? Number one, 100% of the people in the new covenant will be true believers. Unlike the old covenant, Israel, which was a mixed community of unbelievers and believers. Not all Israel was Israel. So if you were born under the Mosaic covenant, children were brought into the covenant through the sign of circumcision, and it was maintained through keeping Sabbath. But now we discover in verse 34 that uh, a, a type of evangelism needed to take, take place because even though you were born into the covenant, the covenant was born in you. So there were many unbelievers in Israel under Moses. That's a big deal. This might seem like, whoa, this is high and heavy theology. Guys, this is, this, is, this is what should get you out of bed on Tuesday morning and get you through lunchtime to serve and love Jesus and tell your lost coworkers about Jesus. So, so, so hold on here. Let's love the Bible together. So number one, all the people in whatever this new covenant's going to be, they're all going to be believers 100%. In Jeremiah 31, there is no such thing as an unbeliever in the new covenant. And that's because number two, verse 34, all the people's sin will be forgiven and removed forever. In the, under Moses in the old covenant, there were sacrifices of animals in the day of atonement. Sin was temporarily covered, but the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. There needed to be a greater sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, now hold on to that because there's more. Stay with me. Ezekiel 36. Turn over to Ezekiel 36 to the right. In Ezekiel 36, one last passage on what makes the new covenant new. This is another key passage. This is going to sound familiar to us because this is the passage that Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We can only look at three verses, 25 to 27. Ezekiel 36, speaking of the new everlasting covenant of peace. Listen, what makes the new covenant new? Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean 
from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what makes the new covenant new in Ezekiel 36? What does the new covenant give that no other covenant could? New hearts, a new spirit, and God's spirit himself. There is a promise in the Bible that a day is coming when God will cause people to be born again. When God will cause people to come from death to life. When God will cause people to go from darkness to light. A day is coming when God will cause people to know him from the heart because his spirit is permanently within them. Back to John 7. This is why Jesus' words are so profound and so offensive that they want to kill him. Jesus is declaring that these promises of the new covenant are arriving in Jesus. Jesus is saying that from his perspective right here in the gospel, it's about to happen. And friends, what do we celebrate every single Sunday together in the Lord's Supper? What does Jesus say every time we remember that he takes the bread and the cup and he says, take and drink, this is my blood poured out for you, this is the cup of the new covenant. Every time we take the Lord's Supper together, it's these promises that millennia of saints longed to have. King David praying, don't take your spirit from me. And now the promise is on the precipice of coming soon that this is going to happen. Jesus' ministry of, with his disciples occurred under the old covenant so that he could fulfill it, bring it to an end, and usher in his new covenant. This is how salvation works. This is why verse 39 says, now this Jesus said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given. That's what that means. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, a believer's relationship with the Holy Spirit is different from your relationship with the Holy Spirit right now. And once Jesus was glorified, through atoning for our sins on the cross, for being buried, for rising from the grave, for Jesus ascending into heaven and pouring out his spirit, do you realize what this means? I recognize that that's complex, but that's also gospel. This, what we've just read, is what makes the good news so good. Do you realize what this means for you Right now, right now in this moment, this side of the cross, this side of the empty tomb, you right now have a greater and closer relationship with God than Adam and Eve did before the fall. No. Yes. No. Yes. Stop arguing. How can I say that? Because only the people of the new covenant have what we saw way back in the day in Ephesians 1. The ministry of the Holy Spirit has regenerated us, making us new. He has sealed us forever and indwelt us forever. Adam and Eve before the fall did not have that. Noah did not have that. Abraham did not have that. Moses did not have that. David did not have that. You have that. You have him. 
You have God's spirit himself, God's cosmic plan from all time in the good news of the gospel is to take a people in rebellion against him who hate him, who don't want him, who are indifferent to him, who are shopping to satisfy their thirst everywhere else. God's plan is to take a people like that, like you and me, and then seal us, indwell us forever so that there would be an overflowing ministry of God's spirit. Not in the future only, now, because Jesus, if you believe in him, has brought you from eternal death to eternal life. From the curse of, of hell to the glory of the eternal new earth. Right now. Once again, Jesus has shown us in the gospel of John that our triune God will never leave us nor forsake us. David could pray and cry out in Psalm 51, don't take your spirit from me. The Christian can never pray that. It's not in our vocabulary. It's theologically false in this covenant that God would ever leave us. That's why Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's why you have the assurance of salvation and the comfort that God will always hold you. And more than that, God's gospel plan for you from eternity has been to dwell in you personally and us corporately. You might be sitting here thinking that God is mildly and maybe mostly over you. Because you know the life that you lived last week. You know yesterday. Right? If we could plug in just even the thoughts and attitudes of your heart and the, and the words that you use and the tones and things you thought and just kind of we could survey your week last week. How, how would that go for you? How would that go for any of us? And so we can come in here and we could think that God is wanting to keep us at a distance. Yeah, Jesus atoned for your sins. Yeah, he's washed you white with his blood. But really, Monday morning, when you get up, you think that God is just kind of putting up with you. But what does the Bible say? What is Jesus telling us here? What is the implications of all of this ministry of the Spirit? God doesn't want you at a distance. He knows last week. That's why he went to the cross for you and already covered those sins you didn't want to sin when he bled out for you right there on that piece of wood when he was crowned with thorns. God, Father, Son, and Spirit wants you close. God does not keep you at arm's length. What does Jesus do? He moves towards you in your sin, even as a believer. What does Jesus do? He more moves towards us in our suffering and in our shame. God keeps moving towards us because we are his. Jesus was your substitute. Jesus rose in your place. Jesus has accomplished his cosmic goal of making us one with him. Go read John 17. We still got 10 chapters to go. We're not there yet. But God's desire is not just to rescue you and then tell you to behave and get out of my sight. No, God's plan is that we would be in him and him in us and have an intimacy of union eternally that can be described best as, well, it's, it's almost indescribable. And these few words in verse 39 summarize all the hope of the Old Testament and reveal this side of the cross, the Messiah has come for you. God has poured out his spirit in you. You are now becoming a conduit of his spirit to overflow out and more. And what does this new covenant life look like? Our final and brief point, point number three, the vibrancy of the Christian life. And this is the point that we will spend all of our time next week on. But look at verse 38. What does it mean that you have the permanent ministry of the spirit? Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let's just have a thumbnail sketch. Here Jesus describes the eternal nature of the Christian life. What is it like to be a Christian? 
It's to have rivers of living water flow from your heart sometime in the future. But that, that's not what your Bible said. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's to have rivers of living water flow intermittently sometime in the past. That's not what your Bible says. To be a Christian is to have rivers of living water flow from his or her heart continually and ongoingly. Now you hear this and you think, those words are beautiful and that's not me. I love Jesus, but my life, no, not, no, not really. You have to come back next week. But notice that this is not a one-time flash flood, but it's characteristic. Will flow, when Jesus says that, describes an ongoing, never-ending state. And, and, and here's the beautiful thing. We saw that the setting is that Jesus is the rock from whom the living water flows. But now the glory of the gospel includes that we become living stones from which that same water flows for others. More on that next week. Jesus, when he says, will flow, is not talking about a past event. Jesus is not talking about a future event. Jesus is talking about the now power of the gospel in your life as a Christian. This side of heaven, right now. Jesus is also clear he is not describing a state or relationship with the Spirit that only characterizes some Christians. There's some bad theology that teaches that. Only some super Christians get this. Biblically false. This is every Christian. This is the state of being that happens for every Christian at conversion. This is not something that happens later. It happens when you're born again. Read John 3 again. When you're born again. Scripture's clear. Jesus says, if you believe, then out of your heart will flow. If, then, period. But Christian, understand this. This is why this matters for you. In Jesus, all of your sins, even your Christian sins, have been atoned for and washed away forever right now. And when you really believe that, that's what it looks like to have a life overflowing, that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, even your Christian sins that you don't want to sin. In Jesus, you have a new heart, a new nature, a new spirit right now. Yes, there's remaining sin. Yes, there's attention. Yes, there's wrestling. Yes, we make foolish decisions. Yes, we still sin sins. But right now, in God's mysterious plan of sanctification, you are a new creation in Christ. In Jesus you have the sealing of the Holy Spirit right now to thirst-quenching, soul-satisfying, overflowing now. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living waters. What does that mean? The words are beautiful. I'll say this. Here's, a, here's another summary text of this, I think. 2 Peter 1.3. Do you believe this? 2 Peter 1.3. I think this relates to what it means to have living water flowing from your soul and your heart. 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Right now. If you're a Christian and you've come in here... This, in part, summarizes what it means the Holy Spirit is living in you and His waters are flowing from you. Do you recognize that right now as a Christian, in Jesus, you lack nothing? Nothing. Right now, you have everything that you need for life and for godliness. Dear Christian, remember, you are no longer a slave to sin. You're not. Sin is not your master. Jesus is. 
you're no longer bound by Satan. Jesus crushed his skull on the cross. The devil is not your master. Jesus is. You no longer live in darkness. You're no longer condemned right now. Christ's perfect love has cast out all fear. God is at peace with you. He is no longer at war with you because of Jesus. God the Father loves you. Jesus loves you. The Spirit loves you. And Jesus died for you to give you his Spirit. His word is a lamp to your feet. You can overcome sin by the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you cannot meet this week thinking sin is your master. Do you believe that? Part of the overflowing power of God's spirit in your life is that sin is not your master. So you may be entangled and entrenched. You may have carved neurological pathways in your brain and, and, and have some form of addiction. That is not your master. You can overcome because Jesus has overcome. As a Christian, you cannot meet this week hopeless. Caleb prayed for our brothers and sisters who are now being, um, have been overrun by the Taliban. Are they hopeless in Christ? They may be beheaded, and Jesus will give them the strength to suffer well. So you can't meet this weak, hopeless, or aimless. You have the gospel and you have the spirit. You cannot meet this weak thinking that God is tired of you. Or that God has forgotten you. You cannot meet this weak defeated and deflated because we have his spirit. So are there interpersonal offenses and problems and difficult conversations? Yes. Is there suffering and, and dashed dreams? Yes. But Jesus is more. Jesus is greater. Jesus has poured out his spirit in us so that you can live and live wisely and live well in the gospel. So Christian, take heart. Jesus has given you everything you need in his word and by his spirit to meet the perplexities and sorrows of life, to meet the joys and elations of life, to meet the mundane and routine. Whether you believe it or not, whether you feel it or not, your feelings don't matter because this is true. And in this case, you may be, not believe it, but it's still true. Your feelings and your beliefs don't make the truth true, contrary to what the world tells you. Jesus is the truth. He tells us the truth. This is the truth. You, my dear friends, are full of living water, so take heart and pursue Jesus. And finally, have you forgotten the invitation? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and drink. What can the world give you? It can only give you the fleeting pleasures of sin, which will destroy you. What can you do for yourself apart from God? Nothing. Nothing that isn't a castle made out of sand, and it will be washed away. But what is the promise the gospel gives you? Friend, out of your heart, can flow living water, God himself. Are you thirsty? Do you want the blood of Jesus to cover all your sins and wash them away because you can't? Do you want God to put you in his favor because you can't put yourself in his? Are you thirsty? If you're considering Christ, drink, believe, Turn from your sin, turn to Jesus. Amen? Lord, uh, we read of these glorious truths and pray that these glorious truths would penetrate our hearts, that the new hearts that we have would be uh, further evangelized by this sweet gospel.
and that we would recognize that you are in us and you have given us strength to follow you. And for the dear friends here who don't yet know you, Jesus, save. Father, we pray this in your son's name. And everyone said, amen. Uh, Church, it is fitting that we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. I would invite you to open up the cracker and cup before you.